This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dressing of gardens has been approved for partial demolition. A housing historian picked to leave London School of Architecture. A massive shake-up in architectural Thomas Heatherwig's new personal assistant. Sadiq Khan set to be flattened in massive Highlight team chosen for the counterpoint. The and legacy of the late great What's this all about? What's this all about? What's this all about? Welcome to London Live's Christmas Quiz Special. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I will be your host tonight. Tonight we're looking back at a year of shenanigans in London's architecture world, from the monstrous mound of MVRDV to the ill-fated folly of Norman Foster's towering tulip. I'm joined by a remarkable panel of London's most compelling commentators on all things in the construction industry. Together, we'll separate the LTNs from the SUDs as we attempt to get to the bottom of what 2021 was all about. I have to say, this has been a huge pleasure hosting London this year. The show is now getting around 80,000 downloads a year, making it the largest and indeed only weekly podcast dedicated to breaking news in London's built environment. We're joined by a stonking panel of historians, practitioners, comedians and commentators. On Team Monstrous Mound, representing the London School of Architecture, we have Dr Neil Chassaw and Holly Harrington. Neil is Chief Executive and Head of LSA. LSA, of course, stands for the one and only London School of Architecture. And by one and only, I mean one of 11 schools of architecture based in London. But the only one canny enough to name itself after the entire city. With Neil is Holly Harrington, a design tutor at LSA and a practicing architect. On team Towering Tulip, challenging the LSA, we have Catherine Slesser, MBE, and Phineas Harper. Kath is, of course, president of the 20th Century Society and was the first ever female editor of Architectural Review. Kath is also <laughs> representing the architecture world in another quiz, Christmas University Challenge, which starts next Monday with Kath's team of Edinburgh grads up against Leicester. The last time any architect was on a Christmas University Challenge was in 2020, uh, which saw an appearance by former RIBA president Alan Jones. Jones only answered one question, uh, which he got wrong. Oh dear. Uh, good luck, Kath. Hopefully you can restore the reputation of the profession, uh, or at least not be as awful as Alan. It's a very low bar, as we know. With Kath is Finn Harper. Finn is a stand-in and desperately writing his introduction as we speak. <laughs> First question goes to Neil. What popular East London building, and I'll give you a clue, it's on Redchurch Street, uh, sparked a massive social media uproar following a recent high fashion makeover? Uh, I think this was the um, David A.J. Uh, house, but I can't remember already which house it is. <laughs> yep, you got it. Okay, it's the uh, it's the the dirty house by David Ajay from two thousand two. Um, so what what happened with it? What what's, what was the what social media uproar? Gucci have taken it over and um, painted a Gucci motif and put um, neon lighting in the windows and um, and 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 above the roof, and it looks pretty bad. Have you had a chance to nip in, check out the fashions? <laughs> I haven't, but I was imagining what other. Um, uh, kind of fashion house takeovers of early AJ projects might look like. So you could have a kind of um, Burberry mole house uh, and maybe a, 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 an Yves Saint Laurent fog house or something like this. But no, I have not, I have not yet been in. 
Have so, you, Merlin? I see. I spot a, a fancy gilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waistcoat. It's all Prada made. <laughs> but this is, of course, the 2002 Dirty House by David Adjaye for the artists Tim Noble and Sue Webster. Um, be fascinated to know how much Gucci uh, paid to do a rap on that building because <clears throat> I have a house in Tooting if they're interested. It's funny. It's because, like, Adjaye's, like, just such a megastar now, right? Like, Obama turned up to his gold medal ceremony the gucci wraparound is like truly awful but it is kind of cool that this 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 architect david adjay has become this sort of huge deal in the industry um but yeah this is the kind of like also the kind of rawest face of the way that um architecture gets kind of co-opted by like big money big fashion these big brands it's kind of a bit icky at the same time while we're on the topic of uh, fashion retailers, um, who else has been causing a massive stir amid London's main shopping precinct? There were plans to not convert, but instead demolish and rebuild its flagship store. Oh, this is Marks and Spencers. This is a this is a c- campaign that um, 20th century society has been very involved in. So Kath um, is also um, uh, can help fill in all the information from the casework committee meetings I've skipped. But um, we're very upset about it. Well, it's just really bad because it's a nice old 30s building and they want to put something really out of scale. They want to rip it down completely, which is really bad for the environment, sets a terrible example, and put a sort of bland, you know, New London vernacular thing instead, which is nine storeys. And it's opposite Selfridges, which is, you know, a lovely building. I'm just pleased that having worked on boring 1920s and 30s buildings for 10 years, that suddenly... (laughs) Thanks to the climate crisis, people are willing to to kick up a fuss and defend them at long last. So I feel very gratified that I was uh, smug, I should say, ahead of the curve as ever. Yeah, it's only taken the planet to literally be on the edge of destruction. But now is your time. (laughs) It's worth it for these 1920s buildings. It was. To get some recognition. Um, But I think, but as as Cassie, M&S had had been parading their... um, uh, eco credentials um, for the for the past few years, and so to um, for quite spurious reasons um, um, demolish rather than retrofit um, is a, is is embarrassing, I think, and a shame. The the I mean, it's one hundred percent right. Uh, you know, t- t- times have moved on, and and M and S need to get with the program. The, the the thing I quite liked about this story was this guy from the Center for Cities. He's like a senior researcher at the Center for Cities. Um, sort of saying you know oh it's okay that they're demolishing it because we need to have we need to have denser cities which is like yeah okay you know yes Anthony Anthony breach, breach. Yeah, right. Ant, Ant breach on twitter yeah like, yeah you know we do need to have denser cities and if we were talking about like zone nine and there's like super low density <laughs> suburbia then maybe there'd be a case for sort of densifying that area but this is this is oxford street and they're replacing a like this building with like a building of like basically the same size doing basically the same stuff just at enormous expense enormous carbon emissions it's like it's got nothing to do with um, urban densification in in general, and then then it's worrying to think, as you said, if there's this um, really leading think tank who are kind of suggesting demolition, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh well, it's okay, let's go with the tabula rasa effect. It's all right, we've come around to it now. And then you know, what is London going to look like then? I mean, how many master plans do we have on the go right now? Holly, you've just hit on the real. The big um, mystery, which is um, you just said tabula rasa, like lots of people say. Um, can we please settle the pronunciation of... Are you a tabula rasa? I'm a tabula rasa, kind of, but otherwise you get confused <laughs> with the with the food stuff, tabule. Tabule. <laughs> but that's tabuli. Well, that's tabuli. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Stop using this word. You're giving the developers ideas. Does anyone know how many... Uh, thousands of tons of CO2 will be released into the atmosphere uh, if we demolish the Marks and Spencer's flagship store. It is 39,500 tons, um, which for any journalist listening is the equivalent of opening 400 million cans of gin and tonic. (laughs) It said it would require planting 2.4 million trees to offset the impact uh, of this demolition project. Uh, So um, 
while we're on the topic of buildings being repurposed, what other, uh, what major purpose-built London public building, uh, it's shaped very much like a human anatomy, is now facing a very uncertain future after being abandoned for another site downriver? Oh, this is City Hall. The gonad. Which I think is, a, I think it's a real, um, uh, a real shame because I guess that that um, kind of uh, hideous um, bit, that more London bit now, will be kind of completely bereft of any life and activity. So uh, the City Hall, uh, built 1999 by Norman Foster, will soon be vacated. I think the 20th Century Society has a campaign already to save it. How, how's that one coming along, Kath? I'll be sorry to see it go. I mean, it, uh, yeah. But what can you put in it? Who's going to, you know, who's going to take over a building like that? What would they do with it? The sad kind of sad, these sad kind of um, <laughs> these riverside deposits of of kind of mm. um, you know London government because there's of course um, Ralph Ralph Knott's um, uh, old um, uh, London County Council yeah, yeah. Um, County Hall, which is is that still the aquarium? I don't know. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's yeah. sort of bizarre that that's yeah that is now an aquarium where you know London was run from. The thing about City Hall is you, you think of it as like the centre of London's government, but in fact, it's all privately owned, and the uh, London Londoners we are renting it. <laughs> Um, to to run our government from this building. So this purpose-built, Norman Foster-designed, extraordinarily bespoke, extraordinarily prestigious building. We don't actually own it. But it's just so embarrassing, isn't it, that like we're we're one of the like wealthiest cities on earth in one of the richest countries on earth, and we don't even own our own city hall <laughs> because we were too cheap to build it ourselves. And so we did a kind of dodgy PFI contract that is like link that you know had 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 the taxpayer on the hook for years paying out this this kind of enormous rent and now we're having to evict ourselves to the Docklands I mean I love the Docklands this is this is kind of a cool move in a weird way but it is a little bit embarrassing it's true I mean it's true that these these things are kind of metaphorical because when the um, London County Council built County Hall um, by Westminster Bridge it was supposed to act as a kind of um, a beacon of of good development um, on the south side of the river, and indeed, when Herbert Morrison, um, the great um, uh, Labour leader of the LCC, as he was in the in the in the mid thirties, um, uh, uh, was um, kind of trying to acquire through compulsory purchase um, what we now know as the South Bank. This was also the spirit that this would that this would demonstrate the kind of potential um, development power of a, of a progressive of a progressive um, local authority. So th- these things, these things are metaphors, aren't they? The next questions are to Catherine. Uh, which new Edinburgh development has caused rather a stir with the odd shape it's added to the city's UNESCO World Heritage skyline? <laughs> so, of course, this is what is euphemistically known as the walnut whip or to translate it into Scots vernacular, the jobe. The jobe is a steaming pile of architectural poo that forms a centrepiece to the £1 billion St James's Quarter, a retail hotel housing behemoth at the east end of Edinburgh's Georgian New Town, which sadly replaces the 1970s St James's Centre, which was a rather fabulous, brutalist behemoth, uh, and that very rare thing in Edinburgh, a modern building in the heart of the city. Um... But, of course, despite brutalism having lots of fanboys now under under following, um, it's now been ripped down and replaced by kind of anodyne contemporary sludge wrapped around the showpiece Jobby, a huge bronze-classed coil, which is actually a boutique hotel. And as Edinburgh's full of hills, its perky, turdy profile is visible from practically everywhere. Just when you thought you'd evaded it, its pert whip... Uh, rears up above the rooftops with a mocking flick. <laughs> Obviously, the Jobby's architects, Jessica and Wiles, apparently had other references in mind. They preferred billowing silk ribbons and the aforementioned walnut whip, which was apparently invented by an Edinburgh confectioner in 1910, who knew um, anything to distract from the obvious scatological illusions. But I'm afraid to no avail. Edinburgh is now well and truly stuck with its Jobby. And as I've seen it in the flesh, uh, and it, as it were, on a trip to Edinburgh this summer, I can confirm that it is also very badly made. It's a sturdy turd. It is not, as Ollie Wainwright memorably put it. 
So, faced with the dilemma of how to terminate the spiralling tour ribbon at ground level, the architects arrived at a solution of making it erupt from the street. So you get this sort of ruptured granite paving as if the ground has been ripped open by the force of some weird subterranean bowel movement. But it hasn't quite worked out in practice, and it has simply created a huge trip hazard. So on my visit, the site was surrounded by fencing and gaffer tape, and as Edinburgh specialises in crappy souvenirs, I expect poo emoji cushions, yes, there actually are such things, <laughs> will be now making an unwelcome appearance in gift shops everywhere. Every turd has a brown shitty lining, and where there's muck, there's always muck. <laughs> It's so bad. It's it so, is. I mean, like, if you're going to build a giant poo, like, at least clad it with, like, the bare minimum of craftsmanship. But they didn't even manage to do that. Almost as if someone actually had an accident. We're going to hear a clip. Uh, can anybody guess which building and which designer's work is being reviewed here? Oh, I just love the new little island. It's like I'm on a magic carpet ride flapping in the breeze. The tulip-shaped columns do not disappoint. First the vessel, now this. Leave it to New York City to create a public park that has very limited capacity and is virtually impossible to get into. Nothing says public park for everyone like $10 avocado toast. And to think this used to be a dilapidated pier where you could have anonymous sex with strangers. Oh, the memories. Well, I don't think I can approve on that critique, frankly. But as you all probably guessed, it, we're off turds finally and on to Thomas Heatherwick. This is uh, Little Island, a Bijou micropark that costs $260 million and which occupies the site of a former pier in the Hudson River uh, in New York's Chelsea district. And of course, because to being Thomas Heatherwick, it's the usual triumph of style over content that has become his trademark. Um, architecturally, it looks like something out of the Lord of the Rings with a cluster of concrete tulips supporting the vegetation of our cry from the original working pier, which was damaged during Hurricane Sandy and at which, apparently, the survivors of the Titanic disaster disembarked in 1912 after being rescued. Of course, nobody could argue with having a park in New York, but it's so tiddly and fiddly that it gets overcrowded very quickly. So you have to book a slot online during the summer months and it just seems like the absolute opposite of what a public park should be. So it's just another flimsy trophy bauble, which doesn't seem like it will age gracefully, unlike, say, the truly majestic Central Park. So another uh -uh for Heatherwick. <laughs> I was in New York, actually, when it was still being built. It looks very interesting, whatever they were building at the time. But it's such a shame to see now that in the end they built all this, you know, build out into the water significant amount of construction and then whatever is meant to be a park they've just paved it all on top i mean you know i don't get what the point of that is yeah it does rather feel like every time london dodges a heatherwick bullet it just lands in new york uh this is the news that edinburgh's world famous unesco protected skyline has been defaced by the, with the arrival of a new hotel shaped like a poo emoji we are talking about the one billion pound st james quarter development is by the London architect Jessica and Wiles. The fact it's a London architect messing up the Edinburgh skyline tells you everything you need to know about the rivalry between our great cities. Um, writing in The Guardian, critic Ollie Rainwright said, you can't polish a turd, but you can clad it in bronze-coloured steel. On pain of death, please nobody tell Thomas Heatherwick this is possible. <laughs> Uh, the next questions are to Holly. Uh, what planning committee meeting got really heated recently and what were members of the public throwing around? Oh, I think this was a, a Camden planning meeting where there were two women, uh, obviously residents in the area, having a conniption over four houses. Not 40, not 400, but four houses being built next door. If anyone manages to see the video, I mean, it was a rather failed attempt, to be perfectly honest, to throw the chair across the table. <laughs> They're quite heavy chairs for a good reason, aren't they? On the subject of dramatic moments of 2021, uh, which architectural insulation was stormed by the police and almost confiscated? There was a police raid carried out at the anti-pavilion site to apparently prevent expected Extinction Rebellion protests, where in the end, 
I think they arrested a few people, but also they confiscated some bamboo and some wire. Well, notoriously dangerous, that stuff, bamboo. Exactly. I mean, I knew the material shortage was getting pretty bad, but I really didn't think it was so dire, you know, that the police needed to make up an excuse to break in and steal some twigs. I mean, <laughs> and <laughs> the other interesting thing that I think it was was mentioned in one of the articles that they had left some police behind until the next day, and they quote, pending arrival of a crack integrity structure demounting team. A crack integrity structure demounting team. I mean, like, what is that? And, and where do I sign up? I mean, can I be an architect and do that? I mean, it sounds far more interesting than doing drawings, you know, or area schedules for developers all day long. I mean, this, this is this is hilarious. Like, you know, the anti-pavilion program, for those who don't know, was this sort of um, series of very small architectural pavilions in East London that were sort of co-sponsored by the Architecture Foundation and this kind of heritage property developer, Shiva. And they, they fell out with the, the council, um, which has resulted in like a big court case and an appeal to the planning inspectorate about whether they should be allowed to keep these um charming little structures um but then they've also ended up getting embroiled in in xr because the winner of i think the fifth anti-pavilion was this guy uh, morgan trowland yeah morgan trowland who's a engineer uh who designed the structures that were used to blockade rupert murdoch's broxbourne print works um, so, you know, he proper activist, designed some proper activist architecture, but then also separate to that won this kind of mini pavilion competition to build a similar structure on top of a warehouse in Haggerston. Yeah. And the Metropolitan Police, having the kind of forensic attention of, you know, a, a, a flea, were like, oh, this looks a bit similar. Let's raid it, assuming that it was a piece of protest architecture rather than an arts installation handcuffed this like family-run business and all of their staff uh confiscated all this bamboo and like achieved nothing and it really it, it underscores um something that's become very clear this year which is that the metropolitan police are not interested in solving crimes we've, we've seen that in some pretty horrific instances throughout the year but anybody who still believes after 2021 that the Met are going to go out and solve crimes for you and prevent crimes for you is just living in cloud cookie land. Because really their priorities are in in, in uh, curtailing and constraining any kind of civil activism. Even something like this, which is not protest architecture, gets literally sort of 40 cops breaking down the door with a battering ram to, to, to handcuff people. Whereas like serious crimes are going uninvestigated and unsolved. So, you know, this, this is, this is kind of hilarious. Like it's architectural culture intersecting with um, uh, the kind of justice system in a kind of bizarre way, but it also tells us something quite chilling about I mean, the state it, of policing it, in the capital. I mean, I mean, it is also it is quite funny because normally when you hold an architecture competition, you you know you pick someone with some kind of media following, some kind of PR following who's creating a storm on social media. Here they pick someone who's been followed by <laughs> MI5 and Special Branch. So they... wrong type of following. <laughs> <laughs> What landmark temporary structure went up in London's West End? Uh, pretty much every critic in the world has thrown an insult towards. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. This is MVRDV's mound. Indeed. Tell us about it. What's the... What not to say about it? I mean, it was, you know, I've forgotten what the cost originally was, but I mean, it's many, many, many times over that now. It went from three million to six million pounds. And then, yeah, and it's Westminster that's building it, right? So... We're footing the cost. No procurement process. Like It's sort of like a ham-fisted reworking of a, a failed serpentine bid that MVRDV did years ago. And it's just as bad as the original proposal, which for good reason never got built. I mean, it's also just strange. I mean, you know, Marble Arch feels like a really weird location to just whack a big old mound there. No one goes to Marble Arch. I'm amazed they didn't... Did they not consult the four pigeons that live there and the two homeless people? Like, Yeah. Is that not a statutory part of a project like this? It's still there. It's free to go until the 9th of January 2022. Free. They're going to start charging after that. 
Maybe they start paying people to go up there. <laughs> yeah, that's just the trajectory. Originally, it was like you had to pay to go up, and it was it was going to be a money spinner for the council. And then like it was such a catastrophe when it came out that they were like, okay, we'll make it free. Just like please stop shouting at us on Twitter. And and yeah, as Merlin says, like the, the next step in that trajectory is that you can maybe get a tax rebate if you go up the mound a certain amount of times in the month. <laughs> Next question to Finn. What controversial multi-million pound musical vision for London, uh, there's a clue, it was a pet project of Simon Rattle, was abandoned this year? Ah, yeah, okay, so this is the um, the pyramid-like centre for music, which was essentially a, an enormous concert hall, a short walk away from the City of London's enormous concert hall at the Barbican Art Centre. Those of you who know the City of London, the Barbican Estate will know that you've got the, the, the Barbican, which is enormous post-war council estate, probably one of the most extraordinary council estates ever built. And in the northeast corner of it is the, it, this, this big art centre that has a theatre, that has a concert hall, that has an art gallery, has all this sort of stuff. And then in the southwest corner is the Museum of London, which was designed by Powell and Moyer and um, is a bit different to the architecture of the Barbican, but is like very much part of the same complex. Um, but the Museum of London is moving to part of Smithfield Market and they were going to knock down the old Museum of London by Powell and Moyer and instead build this Dilla Scufidio Renfro um concert hall uh, because simon rattle this like celebrity conductor reckoned that the acoustics of the barbican concert hall literally sort of a couple of hundred meters away were not quite good enough and so they were going to build this other um concert hall at just kind of mind-boggling expense to to satisfy this like very marginal acoustic quibble that Rattle and people like Rattle had with the, the Barbican Concert Hall. You know, thank, thankfully, um, this project f- was, was, was derailed this year and they're not going to do it because they finally realised that building a concert hall next to a concert hall probably isn't the best investment. And, uh, you know, a city that prioritises these very marginal acoustic performance spaces above something like let's get our air pollution sorted out or let's get our cycle infrastructure sorted out or let's get our bus connections in the southwest sorted out that's that's a psychopathic thing to do it's absolutely the wrong priority one of the things i I really love about this one is actually an article written by you finn where you describe it as london's volley in an intercontinental game of high culture one upmanship and like I couldn't, I couldn't think of a, a, a better way of describing it. And like uh, to be honest, you know, if, if I was in a battle against Hamburg's six hundred million pound concert hall uh, by Herzog de Muron, um, or you know the um, the new one in Paris by Jean Nouvel, you know, I would probably do like a kind of shit your pants move, like building a two thousand seat concert hall no less than three hundred meters from an existing <laughs> two thousand seat concert. Like <laughs> it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Nobody ever seems to agree about acoustics, though. I mean, I really don't know how... Maybe I'm just a moron, but things always sound nice just when you're out for an evening to listen to a concert. I think, Neil, that's because we work in heritage. Whatever the acoustic... (laughs) And and many regulations don't apply to us, so... Yeah, I agree with Neil. I've never come home from a concert twitching because the acoustics weren't right. Thinking, I'm never going there again. Exactly. I'm normally asleep for the first half anyway because I've had a glass of wine and then I just nod off. That's the the reason. I get the best sleep ever during gigs and (laughs) theatre. This is the news that Dillis Gafidio and Renfro's £288 million London Centre for Music has been axed in favour of an upgrade to the Barbican Centre. The 14-storey concert hall was due to be built on the southern edge of the Barbican Estate, where the Museum of London currently is. Instead, the City of London has said it will carry out a phased revamp of the Barbican Centre, and there's a competition running for that now. We'll be revisiting the controversies that result from that in next year's Christmas quiz. <laughs> so I'm going to move on to the next set of questions, uh, which are to Neil. 
2021 has seen some serious heritage battles, which Pomo Swimming Pool recently celebrated a surprise listing victory. Uh, this is the um, Oasis in Swindon, um, built in the 1970s, which has this huge 45-metre dome, aluminium dome, which um, I think is the largest of its the largest of its kind. Really, you need you need you need um, Otto Somerez Smith here, who who has a great talk on flumes and verrucas, um, and apparently also this um, this centre has kind of um, value as intangible heritage because after a chance visit by um, Liam Gallagher, uh, he decided to rename his band Oasis. As someone who is conceived in Swindon. Um, I'm very thrilled about this. It's it, it's an extraordinary structure that, you know, at the time spoke of a kind of more egalitarian society in some sort of elaborate way of like this kind of amazing leisure centres that we used to build under the, this this enormous artificial sky. Um, and it's a real shame that people were trying to knock it down, but they're not going to get to knock it down. And who knows, maybe I was conceived after a romantic trip down the flumes with with the Veruca, Verucas yeah. and all, yeah, and no one looked back in anger. No, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to ask my parents, but but this was another. I mean, this was another shout out to to C Twenty who played a who played a, a very important um, role, and it is really important because I think there are fewer and fewer of these leisure centres, um, and we all have. I'm sure wonderful memories of um, leisure centres. Mine was Guildford, and I was terrified and remain terrified both of the flumes and of the artificial wave machines. Which, oh my god! Uh, yeah, I found particularly terrifying. I no longer swim. But it's like you know, Finland has the sauna, Hungary has the kind of thermal baths, Britain had the leisure centre and the Lido. They, these, this, these are the things are precious to us. We don't have the same kind of bathing cultures that they enjoy in other countries. But we do have these elaborate wave machine, flume-filled leisure centres, and we do have outdoor lidos, and those things are special, and we should protect them. I totally agree, and I was going to just briefly divert onto the spectre of outdoor swimming pools, which was the fact that the terrible, um, the sky pool, uh, there's a controversy raging at the moment because the residents are finding that it's too cold to use and, you know... It's like cost four hundred fifty pounds a day to heat it, so it's like a kind of you know to get the nano violin out. These rich people have been, you know, thwarted because they can't use their pool. The shared ownership residents don't have access to it, <laughs> and now all of the the more elite residents didn't realise, as you said, that they were going to have to pay four hundred fifty pounds a day to heat some open air water in the sky. Um, <laughs> This is the news that the Oasis Leisure Centre in Swindon has been granted Grade 2 listed status as part of a campaign to save it. The domed 1970s swimming pool has been at the centre of plans for its demolition and redevelopment after it closed down more than a year ago. Architectural heritage campaigners are celebrating, uh, but the building's new owners uh, warn that keeping the dome means it is, quote, highly questionable whether the Oasis will ever reopen as a leisure centre again. Uh, next question is for Catherine. Which politician who is famous for repeatedly lashing out at architects more than a decade ago has now been appointed to one of the most important roles in the construction industry? So I see that we're back on turds again. I seem unable to escape them this evening. Um, so this is everybody's favourite, uh, the former Education Secretary, Michael Gove, who once claimed that architects had creamed off cash from school projects. And Govey has been appointed the new housing secretary or to give him his proper title, Secretary of State for Leveling Up Communities and Housing. Um, the 54-year-old Aberdonian, sadly we share the same hometown, uh, took over from the controversial Robert Three Houses Jenrick, who was sacked in September. Um, so Gove, who I still suspect harbours leadership ambitions... Uh, is supposedly one of the sharper Tory tools in the box, um, who once admitted that his ditching of the 2010 Building Schools for the Future programme, a £55 billion school building programme introduced by the Labour government, 
was one of his worst mistakes. Uh, this decision effectively scuppered improvement plans for 719 schools. Um, he also alienated architects, which is obviously not very difficult to do, but he claimed that they had creamed off cash from the programme and that the money spent on design would have better been spent on what he described as frontline services. And famously, when he was taking informal questions at a 2011 free school conference, he said, and we won't be getting Richard Rogers to design your school. We won't be getting any award-winning architects to design it because no one in this room is here to make architects richer. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's depressing because, you know, Gove is, you just can't, you know, he's one of the stains that will not... Um, disappear uh, in the Tory ranks. Um, and it's interesting to note that, like Boris Johnson, uh, Gove comes from a journalistic background. Uh, he uh, worked on the local paper in Aberdeen, the Press and Journal, and was once famously photographed on a strike-breaking picket. Uh, pickets. He was not strike-breaking, but he was on a picket. Um, so he, uh, you know, has so there's a socialist gene perhaps buried deep in there somewhere. Um, but the journalistic thing is that he's used to taking often quite calculated contrarian positions without necessarily understanding or caring about the issues he's pronouncing on. So that's all a bit depressing. But as we know, as was revealed this earlier this year, he does like a bit of a boogie, as we saw when he disported himself in an Aberdeen nightclub in August. Um, Bohemia, the club in question, was hosting a techno and jungle night, which provided irresistible to a man with the plan who was apparently drinking downstairs and apparently tried to blag his way onto the dance floor but was told it was five quid son even for him um, they really should have charged him much much more anyway as Boris begins to come unstuck uh, Gove's grubby little star inches back into the ascendant whoever said that politics is show business for ugly people got it absolutely right I mean how is this 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 man allowed anywhere near the built environment with the record that he's had like it's so cynical it's so manipulative it's playing into all these kind of uh, awful stereotypes of architects all these kind of like privately educated poshos and that's the reason why britain um has an underfunded public sector for education rather than austerity rather than the actual political decisions that people are making to drain um the education sector of 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 talent of resources of creativity of capacity of all these things that are actual problems we're just going to blame it all on richard rogers it's utterly absurd and i can't believe that this is the man who is now <laughs> in charge of architecture well it's partly it's partly part of a, a more um it is in part a general disdain for uh, experts, isn't it? And 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 prof and professionalism, and born of a yeah to total kind of ignorance of 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 where architecture um, uh, really sits in all of that. I mean, it was the to it was the Tories in the nineties who tried to uh, abolish statutory protection of statutory protection of title, and I do wonder um, whether that whether that's going to Hone, hone back into view um, uh, at, at some point. As a sorry, slightly serious question, but how, how, how? What's the effective lobby going to be to com to convince him that architects? Uh... The RIBA is supposed to, you know, represent architects at that sort of level and engage in dialogue with the government and, you know, put its views known. But so lock him in a room with Simon. Yeah, and, and see, see what who, happens. See, what, see who, who comes out. Can... I know who I'd bet on. <laughs> but. But yeah, I mean, it's it's or just... a dance off in an Abedonian nightclub. Well, then it's... I don't. Then I don't know who. To <laughs> but he might be the next prime minister. You know, it's, no, it's, it's going to be Liz Truss. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the culture secretary is a woman who once ate an ostrich anus live on TV. So you know, tells you all you need to know about which way we're headed. Um, sticking on that topic of controversy, uh, which architectural... No, not ostrich anus. <laughs> yes, sticking on the topic of ostrich... Yeah, unfortunately, all the ostrich anus questions have been deleted. Uh, um, sticking on the topic of uh, controversy, which architectural curator and critic caused a storm by coining a new architectural stylistic-ism this year? 
<sighs> well, this is very dreary, but um, it's Owen Hopkins, the person you're referring to, and this is his manifesto for multiform. I always think of multipass in uh, The Fifth Element, but that's a, perhaps a joke that might fall flat. Um, anyway, so AD magazine devoted an entire issue to multiform earlier this year, uh, in which it announced basically that postmodernism's painted corpse is still twitching. Um, multiform is possibly better described as continuity pomo and is characterised by a set of perpetually provisional techniques, which include collage, quoting, remixing and sampling. Ornament, colour and symbolism, the usual POMO suspects, also make an unwelcome appearance. Uh, and this is all seen as a perfectly harmless antidote to the po-faced dry biscuit of New London vernacular. Um, but the problem, I think, with multiform is that it goes simply beyond peddling Instagram-friendly eclecticism. It declares uh, that architecture should disdain grand narratives and ideological sloganeering to do its own thing in its own way. And... As far as Hopkins is concerned, I'm quoting, Multiform rejects architecture's instrumentalisation towards external agencies, be they financial, social or political. So there are many issues here, but the fundamental problem, I think, is this, that however much its proponents might editorialise into being, and as we know, Charles Jenks uh, was specialised in conjuring up a new critical category before breakfast, um, Multiform is not architecture's latest get-out-of-jail-free card, I think at best it's fair to describe it as a frolic on the margins and a plastic fantastic. Um, placing variegated and pluralist practices together under multiform uh, may have a classic sunset effect. You get the sort of transitory garish eruption that you might admire from afar, but you know that it will be dark very soon. So whilst multiform may well contrive to burnish the reputation of its taxonomists and further the careers of certain critics and curators, um, I think it's fair to say that self-serving insularity wilts in the face of critical scrutiny and abnegates the complexities and contradictions of making buildings in an existentially challenging global milieu. And instead, as I pointed out in the AR, it becomes another instance of architecture turning its face to the wall as the world burns, merely to admire the wallpaper. Yeah, well, this is one of those things with, with like enormous respect to Owen Hopkins. I was reading his description of multiform and he says, multiform is the architecture of TikTok, e-scooters, Siri, the selfie, clip-on cladding systems, Netflix, online food deliveries, auto-tune, Zoom meetings and podcasts. Pretty much everything in that list isn't architecture. <laughs> What's he talking about? <laughs> the only architecture in there is clip-on cladding systems. I can't find anyone who loves that. What are we celebrating? This is the news that former Education Secretary Michael Gove, who once claimed that architects had creamed off cash from school projects, has been appointed as the new Housing Secretary. Uh, Gove once admitted his 2010 ditchings of building schools for the future was one of his worst mistakes. Uh, he abolished the £55 billion school building programme uh, introduced by the previous Labour administration shortly after the coalition government formed 11 years ago. Um, Speaking to Andrew Marr, he said um, it was not so much that I was wrong to save money. It was done in a crass and insensitive way and it taught me a lesson, he said. So a bit of contrition there from Mr. Gove. Um, however, uh, as housing secretary, he's so far scrapped the controversial planning reforms, blocked the controversial West Ferry Printworks redevelopment, said bye bye to the much hated proposal for a new tulip observation tower in the city of London. Um Pretty good stuff. Now all he has to do is just bar Boris Johnson from ever commissioning any architectural project ever again. Uh, fire himself into outer space and, um, yeah, Michael Gove will be everyone's best friend. <laughs> so, next question is for Holly. What did Michael Gove condemn shortly after taking up the role as housing secretary, uh, sending a big hint uh, about what his revised planning reforms might seek to curtail certain types of buildings? Yes, we're still on our favourite person this evening, it seems. So after he hopefully doesn't cut the housing budget like he cut the past schools programme, it seems now he's also looking to limit concrete and steel uh, materials being used in buildings, as well as dumping the past Secretary Jenrick's entire planning reform suggestions and also the Westbury Printworks um, project, which was mentioned before. Um, on the plus side, I guess it means that, you know, the tulip or as I like to call it, the space spermazoid, 
is less likely to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, on the print works uh, topic, I mean, that was definitely like the best form of mates rates there for sure. I mean, <laughs> his little texty texty scandal that was revealed with the developer where effectively he was going to save the developer. I think it was um, Richard Desmond, 45 million in sill charges. I think that's a pretty good discount. So surprisingly, I guess at least Michael Gove came to the rescue there in that regard. 45 million. And the donation um, to the Conservative Party was £12,000. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, this is the news that Housing Secretary Michael Gove has linked ugly buildings to embodied carbon in a sign that future planning reforms may seek to limit use of steel and concrete. Um, if only he could recognise and speak out similarly over the ugliness of a government that strips benefits and housing for the most vulnerable in society, uh, that denies basic rights of people escaping persecution, that wages needless culture wars to win favour with the hateful. But that's just wishful thinking. Uh, final question for Finn. Uh, which very uh, unpopular architect design skyscraper was refused planning permission over its embodied carbon, setting a fascinating new precedent? Th this is the tulip. Space spermazoid. <laughs> I'll say that again. This is the space spermazoid. Um, I mean, it's not fair to say that the architects are unpopular. They're enormously popular. They're probably the most famous architects on, on Earth. Um, Foster and Partners, but they designed this extraordinarily weird tower uh, to go right next to their very famous and popular Gherkin in the city of London. And this new tower would be much bigger than the Gherkin, much uglier than the Gherkin, and would have this sort of Ferris, three Ferris wheels of pods at its very kind of pinnacle. Amazingly, it has been rejected finally by Michael Gove on the grounds that the embodied carbon that would go into making this absolutely enormous tower, which is largely a concrete lift shaft, is not tenable on, in, in the climate emergency. Um, so I feel kind of like very confused about this because it was a, it was a it was a bad project, and um, it's bizarre that gove the the guy who has thrown architects under the bus as a way to distract the public from the underfunding of the british education system is the unlikely hero who has stopped this enormous carbon guzzling monstrosity from from arriving in the city of london um so i i, I yeah i feel uh, pleased about this but it's a complex feeling <laughs> I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about this is um, the, the housing minister, Christopher Pincher, who actually sort of wrote the letter saying this, this project's over. He said that um, he was sort of he felt that the e economic and educational benefits w would not counterbalance the damage to her heritage assets and, and the environment. What on earth were the educational benefits of building this thing? Like, what what the hell was he talking about? I mean, was it was it going to be a special exhibition on stupidity? Um, like, why do humans do silly things for money? Uh, the experience, like, seen from whatever three hundred meters above the London skyline. I mean, what an education! Yeah. <laughs> This is the news that a controversial bid to construct a 305 metre tall tourist attraction dubbed the Tulip in the city of London has been blocked by the government, ending years of speculation over the project designed by one of the capital's most acclaimed architects, Norman Foster. Um, it was going to have 24 gondolas, each able to hold up to eight people. They were going to rotate around three 100 metre long oval tracks on the outside of the tower's apex. Whoa. Um, the pods would move at about a fifth of a metre of a second, giving visitors a nine metre journey. Um, and I ask you, you needed Michael Gove to tell you this was a bad idea? There's nothing we can add as like wannabe satirists that can possibly <laughs> add uh, flavour to how ludicrous this whole thing was other than just describing it in the way that you've just done. <laughs> what a stupid idea.
You have been listening to the London Live Christmas Quiz Roundup of 2021 London's Biggest Architecture News uh, with uh, the fantastic Team Monstrous Mound, uh, London School of Architecture's Neil Chasaw and Holly Harrington versus uh, the towering tulip team uh, featuring Catherine Slesser and Finn Harper. Uh, so the final result uh, is 43 to the LSA Ooh. team. And a mere oh, yeah. 26. Oh, really? Yeah. This is how justice works. <laughs> the crown has been given to the LSA and you will defend it uh, again in the future. So the LSA is in good hands. Amazing. <laughs> thank you, everybody. But uh, once again, yeah, thank you to all our panellists this evening. Thanks and, for having um, me. It's been a pleasure. Merry Saturday. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.